Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had. And I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design, still my favorite is the built structure and interiors and years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listened to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Bob Murphy from Murphy Partners in Toronto, Canada. They're award-winning architects and they specialize in senior housing. And Bob's an absolute genius in this area. And before Bob says a word, I want to warn you here, like his other possible vacation was going to be like a a late-night radio host and when you hear his voice you'll understand exactly why bob welcome to talk design great to have you here man thank you adrian it's so nice to be here there's that voice (laughs) fantastic bob hey let's kick right off with you know like of all the things in the world why architecture would be the first thing and what was the journey that got you there was there you know some epiphany or was there some kind of mentor 
or did you come from a long line of architects? Where's, where's the history? Where did it come from? It was celestial intervention. I can't think of any other way to describe it. When I was in ninth grade in high school, all of the students were assigned a topic. We had to each pick an occupation and read up about it and give a little speech to the rest of the class. So the students learn about different employment opportunities. And I was sitting in the cafeteria with all my friends having a lovely lunch when one of my buddies said, really looking forward to your talk right after lunch. And I had uh, prepared, I had prepared absolutely nothing. Racing down the hallway to the guidance counselor's office, and they had these wire carousels of booklets. And at the top of the carousel were the A's and I grabbed architecture. And I uh, ran back to the cafeteria, made a few quick notes and gave my first speech on what it was like to be an architect. And that's an absolutely true story. <laughs> Fast forward four more years, it was time to make our final selections for our uh, university entrance courses. One of my, I, probably the same friend said, Murph, have you picked your uh, courses for university yet? And I said, why no, when's it due? After lunch. <laughs> So I went running back down the hall and got a booklet on the only career I knew anything about, which was architecture. And I picked mathematics and physics and English and a few other topics that I needed to have. And I went into architecture. The rest is history. The rest is history. <laughs> That's a great you story. Make, you can't make this stuff up. It's, no. it's all true. <laughs> It's pretty funny, though, isn't it? Like I get different people and, you know, they have this long lineage and all the rest. And yours was like in moments of desperation. And and I come I come from a long line of automobile salespeople. Right. OK. And in, in many in many ways, it's been much more instructive than my architectural training. <laughs> Richard, Richard Petrie might agree with me. <laughs> God bless Richard Petrie. So off you went to architectural school. You clearly the marks to get accepted into architectural school. And uh, where did you go and study? I studied at the University of Waterloo, which is about an hour and a half outside of Toronto. They were the only school that would take me. <laughs> and so from there... You, you graduated. Tell me the tell me the story that actually then took you from graduating and then choosing to be a specialist in like senior housing, and not just because you were getting closer to the senior housing in your own age, but tell me about that part of it. Well, like like many parts of my life, it was celestial intervention. Uh, I graduated in 1979. And I went to work for a large engineering company. Uh, I was one of the young Turk architects at this giant engineering firm. And as the 80s ground on in Toronto, the recession hit. Uh -huh. And uh, the company went from a five-day week to a four-day week. And from a four-day week to a three-day week. I was already having trouble coming into the office because I was picking up so much moonlighting work. So... At one point, I decided if I didn't make the jump now and set off on my own, I'd probably be a very old man at a 200-person engineering company. Yeah. So right. I made the leap, and uh, 
you know, for a, for a year or so, we were doing projects I like to refer to as Aunt Betty's Garage uh-huh. and, uh, you know, uh, Uncle Bert's Back Porch and, uh-huh. uh, you know, the odd little, little renovations and additions and so on. And then one day, our, our only advertising was a Yellow Pages ad. I think it said Robert Murphy Architect and my phone number. Yep. And somebody, somebody called that number uh, in 1985 and said, can you put an addition on a, on a retirement home in Peterborough? And I thought about it for about a nanosecond, and I said, yes. And that turned out to be about 100 retirement homes ago. Wow. Wow. So, so it just, we just, was just by chance again that um, somebody made that call and uh, you, <laughs> without like going too deep into it, said, yeah, we can do that. And uh, away you went. We had we had no reason to believe we couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I like to say they cracked the door open and I crashed through. Yeah. Uh, and the industry at the time uh, was a lot of small mom and pop operations, and we were we were working on smaller retirement projects in little towns around Ontario. Yeah. And the typical, the typical modus operandi would be go in and find the biggest mansion in town, rezone it, uh, perhaps from a, a single family dwelling into a retirement home, put yeah. an addition on it and move on to the next town. So very, so you very would, quickly. You would you'd basically renovate the building into being uh, multi-res. Um, because they started, a, yeah. Yeah. Initially, initially, we were doing conversions and additions. Yeah. And uh, then, you know, fortuitously, <laughs> a number of years later, uh, we got a phone call asking if we could do the same thing for a, a major operator that was moving from BC to Ontario. Mm-hmm. And we did, and we were very fortunate enough to be the architects for their first project in Ontario. And that was a real step up in the, the quality and the size of the project. So we went from doing, uh, you know, residential conversions to what we call the cruise ships. Yeah, and, right. You know, these, these were basically hotels that never left the harbor. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so you know, that, that and, is a journey in, in aged care in itself, isn't it? Like, um, you know, the aged care industry, I certainly know in Australia it um, it's very regulated and it also has a lot of subsidies or did have a lot of subsidies at one point to drive it and uh, so that it became a I suppose a, an area where people could actually make a, a decent business out of it and then that sort of became corporatized as well along the way because of corporatizing care so that you got um, the standards, you know, that were required. What was the journey of that in Canada? Similar, was it, you know, and suddenly it became a boom market? Well, we started out in the retirement side of the business, which is lighter care yep. and uh, let's let's say more hospitality than hospital. Yeah, right. And, okay. And un, unregulated. Uh-huh. Uh, the, o- the only restriction was that there was a cap on the number of hours per day of assistance you could provide to your residents. On the other side was the nursing home 
right. long-term care sector, which which has always in Ontario, it's always been licensed, uh, and yeah. it's a two-stream or two-tier system. We we have profit op, for-profit operators and not-for-profit no. operators. Yeah. Yeah, and you know we've we've been fortunate to work for both, but they're very different animals. Oh, really? So, um, in a not-for-profit operator versus a for-profit operator, what would you see as um, the differences, and just with architecture as opposed to, um, you know, like necessarily it will determine how people live, but from the first point, like in the architectural space, what would be the difference? I. Ironically, I think the nonprofit operators or the charitable uh, groups mm -hmm. have a little bit higher aspiration in, mm -hmm. in terms of, in terms of uh, amenities, and they're able to raise funds uh, through charitable donations and so on and going to the community in a way that the for-profit operators are not able to do. Yeah, they couldn't so entertain you, it. Yeah. So, so you're often able to provide other community amenities within the long-term care home uh, that would not be possible for a for-profit operator. Yeah, right. Okay. And so right, that's right back to your master planning. Um, so do, in, in general, does it, you know, that the company that you work with procures a site um, or are you before, you know, are you early on in that process or where do you sit in that process? Do they come to you when they've got a block of land or do they come to you when they're looking for a block of land? We're actually involved at all stages with different operators. Mm -hmm. uh, we're fortunate. We're fortunate to have repeat customers who are engaging us in searching for sites yeah. Uh, so we're we're actually bird dogging the properties and trying to bring things to them that we think might be of interest, uh, just because we have sort of more more antennas out than than they necessarily do. And also, site uh, selection is going to be huge for creating the right amenity. So if you know that a a certain operator builds or, or um, desires a certain kind of amenity and has certain requirements around it you see a site that might suit one but maybe maybe not suit another would that be true uh, definitely and we we also have another sort of side niche which is working with places of worship uh -huh. and we found that there's there's some very interesting synchronicities or, or serendipity between uh, the churches who are land rich and cash poor yeah. and the operators of retirement communities who are cash rich and, and always looking for land. Yeah. Right. So, so you can create a nice synergy between them. Exactly. And we've been able to uh, be the architects uh, for both the church and the seniors housing project on some substantial properties. Uh, and it's, it's been really quite gratifying because at that point, you're doing community building, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're working, mm -hmm. you're working. Uh, I think the work is much more substantial and has much more of a, an uplift to the neighborhood. Mm. than if you're just doing one or the other, because there's a great synergy between the, the uh, congregation and the elders in the seniors community who of course are from the neighborhood and from of the course. community. So yeah. what yeah. could be, what we, we encountered so many churches where, they were built 
100 years ago. And of course, there's 15 steps up to the front door, right? Yeah, back in the old days. The, no no and mobility the, and the, the congregation ages or the seniors of it, the elders age with it. The, wash, yeah. the, the washrooms are in the basement and they're yeah. not wheelchair accessible. Uh, so, so there's a huge requirement uh, to try and make those facilities barrier free. But what we found ourselves doing is trying to help the churches uh, to reinvent themselves and to resize their facilities because we would hire a thousand, twelve hundred people, yeah. and they've got a massive building and a congregation of forty or fifty or sixty mm-hmm. who are, you know, struggling, struggling to hang on. Mm-hmm. So. By, by creating a win-win situation, uh, we're able to put that property to a much better use, create a uh, financial annuity for the church, and provide a, uh, a place where elders in the community can live right next to the place of worship that they've been associated with their whole life. So, so it's really a nice, it's a nice win-win deal. Yeah, it's beautiful. It, it, it means that... Um those congregations survive and grow based on bringing the community that once was like a local neighborhood around them, but that disperses over years and changes and um, it brings that back together. My daughter goes to a, sorry, I was going to say my daughter goes to a a school where it's a um, a Christian based school and they have a, obviously their own church and chapel and everything on the school grounds, but that, which is public as well as, just for the school and they have a a retirement village that is attached to it as well which is part of their community and she had the pleasure of uh, going and doing some community work there and one of the things she came home really excited about it and she was telling us that she had just helped the uh, the guy who was the first principal of that school to set up some new things on his email and his mobile phone and make them connect Fantastic. to each other and stuff like that. And yeah, it, it, when you, when you see that, that um, lineage and it meant so much to her that sure he'd been her, never her principal, but he was the principal. And then you look at it and you go, well, that whole, their, their church, their school. So right from the early learning part of it, right through to the, end game of um you know the retirement village and and seeing life out there is yeah it's a really beautiful community gesture and community space we find it very very satisfying uh work to do uh Mm. because we get to go back and visit the places we design and uh it's not like a a condominium once you once the condo's up you don't go there anymore yeah exactly unless uh, you unless you bought an apartment that's it yeah (laughs) yeah but uh you know we we go to uh you go to christmas pageants and you go to Uh easter parties and uh it's just it's great to be able to see uh what an impact your work can have so uh and so that first one did you say was in the 80s was the first yeah 1985 yeah 85 so now we're 2022 what um well, maybe skip to where, you know, it, it started in these sort of more greenfield sites, but what's changed in the way uh, we take care of people or, or we offer them um, the amenity to live in a retirement village? You know, I 
think of my own dad. He's 94. I'm never living in one of those bloody things is, is his kind of attitude. And yet loneliness is a reality as you get older, especially when you live a long time because of the fact that everybody else passes away and uh, you've got to reinvent your friendship. So with, with a retirement village kind of thing, I get that in here in Australia, people go in from 55 years old, I think is the, the age mm -hmm. that they can go in. Um, tell me what you see in the amenity and how it's shifted and changed and where it's headed well, or, or where, where it is and where it's been. And then we'll go to where it's headed. Well, I, I, interestingly enough, I, I I'm talking to you from the parking lot of my parents' retirement home uh -huh. who are 90, 92 and 93. I just had to make a, uh, a quick visit. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with the day-to-day uh, -day realities of retirement living. Actually, they, they have, uh, graduated if you can call that from uh from independent living to assisted living assisted which living is, uh, yeah which is you know it's another step on the on the road they're not in long-term care yet but yeah uh, it's uh, it's probably it, on the horizon did you it is that's kind of cool as well in the sense that um you're getting them to stay around for a long time did you happen to design the one they're in Ironically, no, but it belongs to a client of ours who we've done a lot of projects for. Uh -huh. This is this this is an older building. It just happened to be closer to where we live. My parents, uh, I grew up in my, with my parents on the west side of Toronto, uh -huh. and um, my wife and I live on the east side of Toronto. So uh -huh. when my folks had uh, some health issues five years ago, and it became apparent they weren't going to be able to live on their own, I said, "Well, you're going to come out." you know you're to coming east yeah yeah you're coming east because it can be a 20 minute or a two hour drive depending on the time Toronto. of the day yeah. yeah yeah so now they're about five minutes away and it's it's a breeze to pop in and uh pay a quick visit or just get them something that they need yeah that's lovely that's lovely so yeah if, if in the change of these um facilities in the last say we, we use say 30 years what um What's, what's been the major kind of things that shifted? And you did make that point before, like about it's kind of like cruise ship living or whatever, you know, it's resort type style. Yeah. I mean, when we, when we started, uh, you know, back in the mid eighties, it was very common that uh, people would share a room. Yeah. Uh, unrelated people would share a room. And uh, it's like when you were 18. <laughs> I guess I guess so. Yeah, at, at a hostel, a seniors hostel. Uh, but the average age in a retirement home in these smaller towns was about seventy-five. Right. And so old, but not so seemed, old. Yeah. Well, now, and and I think at the time, maybe it's because they were smaller communities and maybe more farm-oriented communities. Mm -hmm. uh, people would retire off the farm and they'd move into the retirement home. Uh, as we got more involved in, in more urban settings, we saw the age of entry moving up quite a bit. Now, I would say you'd be hard pressed to find someone moving into a retirement home under about 85 years old. Oh, wow. And 
and there are no there are no semi private rooms. Uh, you know, you're you're gonna you're gonna see you're gonna see smaller units. You're gonna see you know some studios and studio dens, but you're gonna see one bed one bed plus a den, two beds. Uh, there's a, a much greater capacity to pay. Yeah, and there, and there's a lot of desire for uh, you know the premium the premium packages mm-hmm. with all all of the bells and whistles in, in mm-hmm. addition to the care there's all of the amenities of a five-star hotel right so gyms and pools and golf courses maybe and just you name it there could be everything there bowling alleys movie theaters with popcorn machines yeah wow <laughs> uh maybe not a golf course but virtual golf yeah yeah that's uh that's pretty amazing isn't it and as you say it's um it's driven by the ability to pay and people choosing to spend those um, those retirement years or those later retirement years, um, possibly doing stuff that they never got enough time to do when they were younger. I think I think there's been a lot of uh, a lot of eyes opened. Mm. Uh, I know my I know my mom's or my wife's uncle has just moved into a retirement home at the. Uh, Bender age of 97, he's been living on is absolutely adamant that, you know, this was not, not for him over his dead body. You know, you've heard yeah. the story. Oh yeah. Now, yeah. I, now, it's the same. Yeah. Okay. Well, uncle Bill had a bit of a health scare and his daughters talked him into a trial stay and no sooner did he move in that he became like co-conspirators with four or five other spry old gentlemen who are terrorizing the place now and he would never he can't imagine life without why them. he waited so <laughs> why did he wait so long he's been you know he's been living on his own and lonely for years and years and years and years and now he's got like four new friends and he's having a great time you know it's it, it the, the loneliness thing is something that uh i I, I really saw him, my dad, my dad, um, you know, he's been amazing at reinventing his friend group. He's an artist and he would teach people. He's a fine artist and he would, he ran art classes and he would have students, you know, who would be half his age. And um, so they might be in their thirties and forties back in those days, late thirties and early forties and mid forties. And um, he made, uh, where well, he has made like connections and friendships with those people where they pop in and Absolutely. see him. They come once a week for an art lesson, you know, these kind of things. And it's, um, that's been his lifeline, I think, to not being um, lonely. And, you know, my mum died quite a few years ago, but just to not having just total loneliness. And uh, he's, he chose to live on a, on an Island um, which is fantastic when you want to go there on holiday, but it means that he's not accessible. You know, you've got at least a 20 minute <laughs> boat ride to get to him. Um, that's the minimum, you know? So, right. yeah, I see that kind of thing. And I go, he would have, he would um, probably have been like one of those terrorizing uh, guys that if he'd got into a click with a bunch of people, but the bloody mindedness of sticking to, I'm never going there has been a thing. And yeah, well, we, we never got him in to give him a try. 
I've been very fortunate to be able to uh, offer rides to a lot of 90-year-old former pilots uh, who you learned to fly during the Second World War. And uh, one of the charity outreach programs that we offer is, is we offer rides in an antique open cockpit biplane as a fundraiser for seniors organizations. So just as, a, as talk- a little pause there, Bob, rewind a fraction and tell us, uh, Bob's a pilot, tell us about your plane and your passion for flying and then tell well, the us most- about how it works together. Okay, well, the most important part, Adrian, is the plane was built for the Royal Australian Air Force in 1940. Wow. And uh, it's it probably as a they're trainer. probably still using the other ones currently <laughs> as the Air Force here. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot of tiger moths in Australia and New Zealand, not so many in Canada, but. Uh, there were almost 10,000 built during the Second World War. And uh, mine was, mine served with the Australian Air Force after it was demobilized. It, it served as a crop duster sold to a flying school in Madras, India. Oh, and wow. in, the ni- in the 1970s, a guy from Canada bought four of them and imported them into Canada. To do crop and, dusting? Uh, my- no, just just to fly around, just for fun. Uh-huh. And, uh, mine was flying it around having 1980 and 1998, and it took me 10 years to get the plane back in the air. Uh, and, and learn to fly it in the meantime. Uh, it's not, it's not the sort of plane we learn to fly on these days. It's a very rudimentary, very rudimentary, uh, 1930s technology, but it's an open cockpit aerobatic biplane and, uh, it's a time machine. Fantastic. It's, uh, it's absolutely, absolutely fantastic. And all of the guys who learned to fly for the, uh, for the Commonwealth uh, air effort learned to fly on Tiger Moss. Right. Uh, the Americans flew on a Stearman, but uh, whether you were uh, Canadian or flew Tiger Moss. So all of the guys that I'm taking, these guys who are in their 90s, all learned to fly in this airplane. And if you go on our website, there's a video of me taking a 93-year-old former RCAF guy for a flight and he brought a framed photograph of the day he stole in 1943 wow in the same airplane wow it's just it's just you know us generation so so it's such a it's such a kick to take these guys up and a couple of them you know you get off the ground and you tell them okay you have control they're flying like they, they still have it. That's so beautiful. I mean, they probably haven't flown a plane in I don't know how long. But then, 70, 70 years. Wow. 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 That's uh, what a gift to be able to do that and, and give that to people who well, I got, I got, yeah. I got into, I got into offering the rides as a, as a, uh, 
a way to get out of having to play golf in charity <laughs> golf tournaments because a lot of a lot of my clients put on these you know fundraising golf tournaments and uh -huh. i think golf's a great way to spoil a walk in the park uh so i i don't golf and it was just misery for me but i very quickly learned that all of these events had a silent auction table and i made a deal with one of my clients that said if i never have to play golf again i will donate a ride in the tiger moth he said well you know do you think anybody be interested oh it was like the number one charity bid auction yeah. item at these and and we've gone on now probably close to 20 different organizations have uh, availed themselves of this opportunity so it's it's hugely popular it's a lot of fun and uh makes me feel good yeah yeah well hey um, on both sides it would make a lot of people feel good that one it um so you've got a have you done any retirement areas that have a, a landing strip on them I wanted to develop my own and oh, I, right. I tried very hard. There was airstrip uh, north of Toronto that was up for sale, but it was and it ended up being bought track was bought by an excavator on a pintail on it <laughs> so it's uh that was one that got away yeah uh, they, they still... I still think it's a great idea yeah I, I i imagine like um the within the retirement village sort of uh scenario finding people with common interests and um you it, people have lived a while they've they've probably got enough worldliness to have uh, to find a subject that they can connect on without a doubt but when you find that thing like you say where something that's a discipline and takes a bit of training and takes uh, a bit of um dedication that they may have done years ago to be back involved in in the future so we have an organization here in um australia called the men's shed and i know it's not just in australia but um again these uh lots of guys go and they'll do woodworking and all these kinds of different mm -hmm. things and with that um it's fascinating like just uh being around each other and then working towards projects that can help people things like that it's uh it it gives a, a real another kick in life that you know is a is a it kicks you on and keeps you focused and gives you purpose and um so often that's right it's a sense of purpose as a, ch mm. a chance to share your skills yeah yeah without a doubt without a doubt so when you look at um things like you know that big cruise ship they call the world i think it is uh and it, and it spends its time cruising around the world. And it's a retirement village, essentially, I think is the idea of it, that um, you, know, you buy a berth on there and then that's, that's where you that's live. Right. Um, liken that to the retirement villages that you see or design, 
you know, give me some sort of like, I'm going to use the word runway, that's not good for a pilot. Give me some sort of um, <laughs> some perspective on uh on think on on this sort of shift in in thinking of what retirement can be. I think, in many ways, it's it's simpler. It, it goes more to what we've just been talking about in the last five minutes: uh, camaraderie, socialization, sense of purpose. You can have all the bells and whistles you can have the toys and the amenities but if you don't have uh terrific caring staff and if you don't if you're not able to build relationships with your neighbors mm -hmm. uh, then then it's 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 always going to be hollow so i i like to remind our staff that you know we're the bricks and mortar guys <laughs> <laughs> and we can we can make a really terrific looking building, but never underestimate never, never kid yourself into saying great architecture is only gonna get you halfway there. Yeah. And and as you get more and more as you as you get deeper into the seniors health care or elder care industry. You, you come to really respect and appreciate what the hands-on caregivers are offering and, and you, you look at the sacrifices they've made and how they've, they've stood up over the last few years. Uh, they're, yeah. they're really the stars of the show. We're, we're just providing, we're, like, we're, we're set decorators. Yeah, right, yeah. But you know, the thing with that is, is that whilst you might be just set you know, decorators, you, how you decorate that set and how you create the amenity creates the ease of life and the um, culture somewhat as well, like for the, for the, you know, the caregivers, as well as the um, people getting the care, you know, well-designed spaces. Well, we all know, everybody knows that, you know, if you think of everything that most humans touch other than, uh, where their feet touch nature and most of that time most of the time that's in shoes um the rest of it they're touching something that's been made by somebody or designed by somebody and when it's poorly designed it's a constant level of stress and frustration and when it's well designed it's a constant sense of joy so in the sense of you you take these people who have lived a, a, a reasonable amount of their life already and then you put them into a, a new situation. And if you can create the joy in that, that's by the architecture, that's actually critical. And then also for the people who are giving care to them or facilitating the place, you know, creating enough uh, ease and joy in there as well. And is there sort of some key tips that you'd say, these are things that you can't see you're always looking for um, that are specific? Well, I think I think you've made a very good point, and one is to uh, honor and celebrate the people who are working in the facilities, mm -hmm. uh, and to make sure that as much care and attention and amenity is given to them because they really they really are the frontline warriors uh, have been for the last few years, and they should have 
dues and great, but, uh, you know, well as you're paying residents. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really key point, isn't it? Is, is, um, because they set the culture. Well, it's also, it's also, uh, staggering attrition in the ranks of caregivers. Uh, over the last few years, so many people have uh, burned out, dropped out, got out. Uh, it's important to uh, attract, nourish, and retain your your caregiving staff. You know, so th- you want to is... provide for them as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, and certainly with the the lockdown scenarios that the world's been through with the um, COVID-19 pandemic um, where, you know, people couldn't visit their loved ones, et cetera, et cetera, because of the, well, the way the virus was more likely to kill older people and stuff like that. And then you go, um, these caregivers became more than just frontline caregivers. They became the whole infrastructure for the, these for people that were in these homes. Um, and so, and then well, we've ironically, got an... Ironically, the... No, go, go. What I was going to say of for improvement, in the lunch of hue and cry over poor profit that the government mandated that all the facilities have to be updated and upgraded. So there's a huge uh, movement afoot right now to redevelop the older facilities that had two, three, and four people sharing a room. That's no longer allowed anymore. Uh, the most you can have is two and a two sharing a semi-private room, mm-hmm. but uh, the preference is towards single accommodation and semi-private much more legislation in terms of ventilation and fresh air changes per hour and uh, not mixing uh, circulation patents trying to ensure that people coming in and out of the building and goods coming in and out of the building are maintain are are sort of infection free and not bringing uh, anything in that they shouldn't be bringing in. Mm-hmm. If you were to take um, if you were to take some lessons from what's happened there, and you were looking at residential architecture, what would you what would you take from one to put to the other? You know, like what would you carry across from that? Um, behavior that the, that the, the government's mandating for um, retirement and uh, care homes into just a residential home? Well, I think, I think what you'd find is that the, the challenge is to try and make the institutional setting more like a residential home setting. So you have easier access to outdoors, uh, operable fresh air, good ventilation. Uh, you know, it's because of the age and the scale of some of these older properties, 
they were never really designed to have a home-like environment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were designed, they were designed frankly to uh, warehouse people mm -hmm. uh, in a minimal cost setting. So mm -hmm. now there's a lot more legislation in terms of uh, amenities requirement, the dimensions of the windows and doors and hallways, and just a lot more uh, prescriptive solutions. Which but is if you if you were to sort of sorry, keep going. No, I was just gonna say it's it, in a lot of ways people want to stay in their own house because it has those features and maybe it has access to a garden or a patio mm -hmm. or your mm -hmm. own living room or your own dining room. And mm -hmm. now, you know, good practice for seniors housing is to create a much more home-like environment. So that instead of having huge long hallways of nondescript doors, sort of as far as I can see, residents are arranged into smaller number of staff looking after a smaller number of people so it's it is more like a like a co-op or a small communal housing unit. yeah that's fantastic it, i mean it's people who are all eating together but that's yeah yeah I think that's, um, you know, like if you looked at the parallels between that and um, obviously residential and then also um, large campus uh, office spaces, um, you know, where you've got large campuses, there's probably a lot of synergies that play between each other. And we are, we're in the residential market where we've got far more what we'd call resort style homes as well. Uh, where that shift is moving towards that. Um, I've got one last question for you because this has been a fascinating talk. Um, so either you've picked out already where you're going to uh, retire to or you've got it in your head to get it designed. <laughs> Tell us about that. Years and years ago, there was a movie called The Big Chill. Oh, and I remember it, it well. <laughs> it involved it involved a bunch of near and dear. I don't know if they were high school or college friends getting together. Yeah. But uh, my my wife and I have always referred to that movie as, as what we would like for ourselves, and we would like to pick our own uh, group of roommates and uh, have our we we could hire a terrific executive chef, we could hire a trainer, we could hire, a, you know, whatever we need, but maybe we have four couples or five or six couples and we get a big house, maybe go back to one of those big mansions in these little Ontario towns I was working in, but instead of putting an addition on it, uh, we would just renovate it to our own, uh, our own desires and sort of be masters of our own universe, uh, get the care we needed, uh, but do it, do it with a, do it purposefully, and yeah. with a with a with a a group of our own choosing. That would be pretty fascinating. About, 
that's about as good as I think we could get. <laughs> you know, it, it, it would be, wouldn't it? It would be, um, it would it's be co-housing. Yeah. Co-housing. And then also with that having, um, I think one of the things that, you know, we all, I, I design residential. So, you know, that every house is like, well, where's the guest room? You know, this is like, once upon a time, you're wondering whether there was going to be enough bedrooms for everybody in the house, you know, to have their own bedroom. And now it's like, well, we've got to have a guest wing and, um, you know, they've got to have their own amenity and they've got to have all their things as well. Um, yeah, we don't want them to stay too long, but we do want them to be able to do this. And you know, we're designing a house at the moment for a couple where it will be six bedrooms because they've got some um, three kids and their kids have kids and they're going Yep, we need a bunk room. We need this because they're at the beach and they want their kids to be able to come and they want to be able to do big family Christmases there and your big event kind of thing. So they're building a big house um, way beyond the needs of what they themselves have, but not beyond the needs of what they have for their family. And if you did that co-housing kind of thing that you described, the big chill... I think that, you know, if you had enough space for other people's families to come and stay and, you know, all that, you get this kind of lovely mix as well. Um, well, if you take if you take that idea, though, and turn it back into more of a congregate care setting, mm -hmm. you get the you get the idea that a really well designed long term care facility or retirement home might be many of those yeah. co-housing units. Yeah. So it's 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 really a case of trying to reduce increase the intimacy and reduce the scale yeah. to get down to a manageable yeah. and meaningful group of people mm -hmm. so that you're not bumping into sort of random people all the time. Yeah. Uh, I I don't know how you I would like to have the control to pick my own roommates <laughs> and, and, and maybe, and maybe if it's. My project that's taking you back into the work that we do uh, for our corporate clients. The best we can offer is to provide physical solutions or architectural solutions that, that st stimulate and encourage those type of meaningful interactions on a smaller scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that happens um, in uh, people moving from their home to a retirement home is, is, or, or even into care is the amount of downsizing that they're doing uh, to fit in to the space and right you know like there, there's there i look at different chapters in people's lives and we go it, it is another chapter but in that downsizing you've collected the most chapters already and from each chapter there's meaningful trinkets moments stories photographs you know all these different things and in our home we manage to dot those around us um, and it, it keeps us in touch with who we've been and who we want to be. And then when you go into this new environment of downsizing like this, um, a lot of that's lost. And if you 
are able to do it in the way you just said, like, you know, the big chill type factor. I think there's some really beautiful synergies that you'd be able to bring with you uh, because you'd almost be creating, I imagine, mini apartments within maybe a larger facility um, right. where it's personalized to each, each couple, person, whichever way it works. Mm. Well, so, hopefully, uh, hopefully we've encouraged. <laughs> yeah. I think it. I think it would be a pretty fascinating um, way of uh, approaching it as well. And I certainly um, have a couple of clients who have approached um, their homes that way, uh, with you know knowing that they they might need care. Uh, we had a client a few years back who knows that he has a degenerative disease. He's actually a doctor, and he was like, "Yeah, well, no, I'm building this piece here for the for my carer." Um, and uh, that's right. what that's what you're designing this bit for. This is actually not for me. This is for my carer because there's a 99.9% chance that I'll need it. And this is why we're designing it in a certain way. And in the meantime, well, it's a space the family can use when they come and stay. So, right. Forewarned is forearmed. Yeah, for 100%. So um, I did have, that was my last question, but I've got one more, which is... Um, how did how does anybody get on that list of who's going to be in the big chill? <laughs> well, Have many you set the bar very high? <laughs> many are called, fewer are chosen. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really brilliant, man. Bob, fascinating chat, man. I really, really enjoyed it, and I, I think the you know going back over it with the, those things around you know, honoring the people who worked, who work in those facilities and, and, and nurturing them and making them an environment that they are bringing the culture into the place is just so critical and such a key point to, you know, how it is. And then that mandating of, uh, from the government to increase this amenity constantly as well. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, just makes makes such a difference to making sure that people live this better life. One of the things I see is, is we're going to, um, I don't know that we're going to, with our baby boomer population thing, will we end up with um, redundant retirement villages or redundant facility? Or will we end up with those just becoming a new part of housing um, that maybe, you know, is earlier retirement, like you were saying before, you know, it's, it's moved out to say 85 from earlier. Uh, will we see it sort of pick up again and maybe people in their sixties or something where they start to come into these villages more en masse? Um, what will be the shift as we see a shift in population would be my, my one other, it's made me ponder it while we've been talking. Um, what are the your thoughts on that? The demographics of aging are staggering and nobody, uh, very few people appreciate just uh, the quantity of elder care facilities that are going to be required over the next 20 or 30 years. Right. So if I'm around in 20 or 30 years, I'll be happy to start renovating the, pl the projects we're doing now into something else. If, 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 the, more likely they're still going to be age care 
Well, I'm I'm 68, uh-huh. and I'm sort of uh, you know I'm a baby boomer. Yep. Uh, I I don't remember quite where I stack up in the cohort, but if if everything plays out according to plan, I won't be looking for a long term care home for another. 20 years or so yeah yeah and and there's plenty of people who are younger than me (laughs) so i keep i keep telling my staff hey listen we're in it we're in the middle of a growth cycle which has a very long horizon yeah wow and uh and uh you know i think it's going to keep i mean i've been i've been doing this for almost 40 years now Mm -hmm. and the the requirements keep evolving uh the solutions become more elegant more sophisticated uh and hopefully it'll keep us uh gainfully employed and mentally challenged for a very long time yeah and and bettering people's lives which is yeah what it's all about bob fantastic man really really appreciate your time and um i've i've enjoyed it yeah, it's been a great chat. And uh, here's to Tiger Moth flights and um, <laughs> getting in the air and uh, playing Top Gun. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, Adrian. Bye-bye. Cheers, Bob. Take care. We'll post all your socials, et cetera, and we'll go from there. Perfect. Talk, talk to you soon. Cheers, man. Bye. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, If it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking say three questions and this is called takeaway selling so this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you it's almost like imagine if you had some hot chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them you put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you it's that type of thing so this is called takeaway selling so the first question you ask you say well why don't you just leave the situation as it is why why make the change that's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, well, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.